back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Your host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Yeah, I like this music. It, yeah, me too. Yeah. It, it, I never disliked it, but it's growing on me. I enjoy yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, me too. For sure. Cool. It really fits. <laughs> Well, welcome back, one and all. This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute, and uh, also available on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I am Ryan Aris, and I am joined uh, by Nathan Oblak and Dr. Joe Boot. And Joe is uh, Joe's on the hoof uh, this week. We're uh, we've just finished the Christianity and Culture Colloquium uh, here in Southern Ontario. It was a Magnificent event! Really, uh, really delighted with the the group of people who were able to attend, uh, the fellowship that we could enjoy, the teaching that uh, that could take place there, and I guess we're uh, we're looking looking forward to the next thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you uh, if you were listening last week, you'll remember that uh, we had Ezra Institute fellow Andre Shooten on with us, and uh, he was talking about Canada's latest federal action plan. We took a break from the uh, this series on Aquinas, uh, partly because of the uh, the colloquium and the commitments that were uh, that we were fulfilling there, uh, and partly because the uh, the action plan is a, a timely thing that uh, it's important to to try to get our heads around and uh, and think through as Christians. So just to uh, before before we dive back in, we are back this week in our mini series in Thomas Aquinas and Thomism. And we've had a couple of episodes so far. We started out just by discussing who Thomas was, uh, when he was active, what he's best known for, and then uh, going into some to Aristotle, who was Aquinas's major influence. That's where we've uh, we've come from. Today, if the Lord be on our side, we're going to get into uh, one of the one of Thomas's. Uh, main main features, main main uh, emphases of Thomistic thought, and that is the distinction and the division between nature and grace. So that's uh, that's where we'll plan on uh, on spending our time today. Before we get into the meat of that discussion, uh, Nathan, what do we have to uh, to announce? Well, yeah, Ryan, like you just mentioned, uh, we just wrapped up our Christianity and Culture Colloquium uh, just this past week, and uh, I know each of us were, were were blessed by it. We thought it was a great success. It was the the first time we ever ran a program for people from any sphere and any background, and uh, it, it was it was great to see um, how everyone brought a bit of a unique perspective, brought their unique challenges from their various professions. And, uh, I, you know, we had a cop, we had a vet, uh, a vet who had, who's had experience running for public office, uh, a mm-hmm. couple of pastors, a school teacher, uh, someone working with the provincial government. So it was really interesting and encouraging to uh, hear all of them uh, really wrestle through how uh, they should apply the Lordship of Christ to their profession. And uh, next year, we're hoping to run the program uh, in both the United States and Canada. And uh, we should have more information uh, on the colloquium we'll be running in the U.S. Uh, really by the end of this week. So we're excited That's to offer great. this program on the other side of the border. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, Joe, you don't get much rest because you're now headed off to Phoenix uh, for Re- Reform Con later this week. And, and you'll be speaking at the conference and you'll be speaking with uh, a whole bunch of our teaching fellows. Uh, we've got Andrew Sandlin. Uh, Jeff Durbin, James White, and Ben Merkel all speaking uh, with you at the conference. So a big Ezra Institute presence at the uh, the Apology lineup. of Reform Con. That's right. Great lineup. It's an impressive and, lineup, uh, no matter uh, who they're connected yeah. with. Yeah, yeah don't, don't tell the Apologia guys that it's really an Ezra conference. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I won't mention no, a thing. We should really be uh, getting a cut for helping them field this team. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I won't tell them if you guys don't. <laughs> okay. And yeah, I mean, we're, we're excited for Joe to be over there in Phoenix. And uh, Ryan and I will be 
uh, lending our support as we uh, put our feet up here in Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, but yeah, we'll be thinking and praying for you, Joe. So appreciate um, it. Yeah, and um, finally, uh, ticket sales are now open for the Mission of God Conference Canada. Yes. And the theme this year is climate and the cultural crisis. And we've been trying to address this topic for years. And uh, we had we had trouble getting speakers across the border with all of the restrictions. But we finally uh, put this together. And uh, it's it's the event's going to be held at Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario, uh, on Saturday, December the 10th. And we've got Joe, Aaron Rock, and Andre Schutten joining us as speakers and uh, tickets are only $35, so the cheapest ticket we've ever offered for a conference, but it's a, a really important subject. As I said, we've wanted to address it for some time, and we really want to pack the place out for this one. Uh, and you can find out more information on the conference, and you can buy tickets from our website, EzraInstitute.com. And of course, uh, we're calling it the Mission of God Conference Canada, uh, because in 2023, we are going to be uh, running a Mission of God Conference USA, and there's more information coming out regarding that conference uh, in the weeks ahead. And I gather, Nathan, that um, we've, we sold almost 100 tickets in just the first few hours of that going live. Is yes. that correct? Absolutely, yes. So right around 100 tickets. Okay. Uh, tickets have just gone live so this this event we're we're gonna pack it out it, it will sell out yeah, uh, so don't, uh, there, don't sleep there's on this no one. doubt yeah there's no doubt this this conference will sell out so get to our website and grab grab those tickets perfect thanks nate so like uh, like i mentioned just briefly uh we're back into aquinas today joe and our theme is uh nature grace and the uh, the division that uh that Thomas sort of introduced uh, between those two things. And if, if that sounds familiar to, uh, to any of our listeners, this uh, distinction or division between nature and grace, uh, that's, that's because it, it really is endemic in modern evangelical thinking. And we want to today trace that back uh, to it, say, if not its, uh, its if not its very root, at least uh, to the Christianized thinking that uh, that popularized it within uh, Christianity and evangelicalism, and uh, and that brings us back to uh, to Thomas, and the the word for this uh, this division is dualism, and Joe, you've spoken on this before. Uh, maybe you can talk about where where this idea comes from, what are the assumptions and presuppositions that uh, that go into forming it, and then maybe we'll get into where else does such a division take place in uh, in our life and thought. Well, as we've been sort of analyzing over these past few weeks, um, the cradle of Western civilization is the Greco-Roman world, mm-hmm. and uh, the the, the task, as we saw, so we, in, in fact, in the first week, we sort of did, a, as you said, a general introduction to Thomas Aquinas and his context. And then, then the, the second week, we looked at Aristotle, who was the influence, the primary influence on Thomas Aquinas. In fact, he really refers to him as the philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there really is, in that sense, only one. He's the philosopher, Aristotle. And um, so we, we've, we've explained how... Thomas Aquinas is really being asked to interpret Aristotle for the church. And um, we talked about some of the important and positive motives uh, that uh, led him to do that, a missionary motive in there for reaching Muslims and resisting um, paganism. Uh, but the, 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 the ill-founded uh, and misguided attempt to synthesize Aristotle with Christianity. Hmm. So that's kind of where we've been, is that this this was the essence of the project. How, how do we bring the resources of the Greeks, in particular Aristotle, synthesize it with Christianity with a sort of missiological purpose? And what uh, the unintended consequence is the opening of the floodgates, actually, to uh, what we now call secularism 
and a, and a radically dualistic worldview. So that begins with Aristotle's form matter scheme. Uh, remember, we talked about the idea of matter as an uncreated, uh, amorphous, chaotic material, which by a, a forming activity, by um, a sort of divinity principle, achieves the coherence then of form and matter. So what makes things what they are um, is this coherence of form and matter. Matter is the principle of imperfection. And then the divine principle is the form. And together, uh, for example, in the idea of the human person, uh, the, the soul is seen as the substantial unity of the body, the form of the body in Aristotle. And so what happens is effectively is that reality, creation is divided up in Aristotle into a sensory realm and the supersensory realm. The sensory realm, that area you can see and hear and touch and taste and so on, and then a super sensory realm, which is accessed only by uh, the rational soul. Uh, so there's access to that super sensory realm only via, via uh, the rational soul. Now, in in now, you know, the the challenge, as we said, is how does a Christian confront that sort of a worldview? and uh, a way of interpreting reality as form and matter to eternal um, coexisting principles, uh, you could say warring principles or, or levels of reality, and try and Christianize it. Mm -hmm. uh, how, do you, how do you do that? And so um, Aquinas's solution, if we can call it a solution, was to take on uh, the, the Greek notion of nature as form and matter. Um, and uh, bring to bear on it, essentially from the, in a certain sense, from the outside or above it, grace. So grace, uh, which Thomas Aquinas basically says was there at the beginning then before the fall. So he essentially uh, suggests the idea that human beings in themselves are made up of two components, as it were, um, nature and grace, that the, the basic to being a human are these two elements, uh, nature and grace, and that before the fall, um, that super added gift to the intellect was present. But with the fall, man loses this super added gift of grace uh, to his rational soul, to his mind, to his intellect, um, and what the gospel does, and of course, in doing that, uh, you know, the relationship with God is broken. So the fall is seen in a, in a very partial sense. It's not radical. It's not at the root of man's life. Hmm. He loses a, a, a particular gift that would allow him to know God uh, and know salvation. Um, that's lost. That's lost at the fall. And then it's restored in the gospel. So hmm. what... Um, uh, Thomas essentially tries to do is salvage the 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 idea of form and matter that the, the Greek grew uh, the Greek view of nature, but uh, add grace to it. So you now have uh, a slightly different two story version of reality: um, nature on the bottom story, grace on the upper story. So grace is seen as over and against nature rather than the Bible would see grace and wrath as over and against each other. Mm. God's wrath poured out upon creation because of sin and rebellion in every area of human existence. Uh, and grace is then what comes to us as forgiveness, restoration, renewal for our lives. And then, of course, by extension, then Romans 8 to all of creation Um it's grace and wrath that stand over against one another. Whereas in this synthesis, the Greek view of nature and then a Christian view of grace um, sit uh, uncomfortably over against one another. So, and, and this is with retaining the idea of nature as including this principle of imperfection. So you can see how uh, from the get-go, this is going to be mm -hmm. um, problematic as he tries to build this bridge from this Greek dualistic worldview to scripture. 
Um, matter being this principle of imperfection and the rational soul was the thinking soul, which now part, which participates in the divine. So you've got this upper part of man that participates in the divine and the lower part, the material part, which doesn't. And so Aquinas basically divides the creation order into a natural and supernatural realm. And that's the first part of the legacy that has remained with us, this whole idea of the natural and the supernatural. And think how easily Christians talk about that. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, you know, as though reality is in these two fundamentally distinct parts, a natural part and the supernatural part. So nature represents all of life um, in the world as seen in the light of this Greek philosophy without God's word, without the sacrament, without the ecclesiastical offices. And then grace is the preaching of the word, the ministry of the sacraments um, and the ecclesiastical offices. So you've now got this two story view of reality, nature being the lower story and grace being the first floor. And let me actually just quote the Summa um, where uh, Aquinas talks about this in book three. He says, I quote, the end to which man is directed by the help of divine grace is above human nature. Mm -hmm. Listen to that carefully. The mm -hmm. end to which man is directed by the help of divine grace is above human nature. Therefore, some supernatural form and perfection must be super added to man, whereby he may be ordered suitably to the aforesaid end. <laughs> So you've got these, these in, in a sense, the, 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 the division is put completely in the wrong place. Instead of it being, as we often talk about, simply structure and direction within creation. So the structures of creation are good. Creation is a unity. The human person is a unity. And the issue of sin and redemption, um, sin and salvation is a directional issue. For Aquinas, it becomes a structural issue, part of creation is a recipient of grace, part isn't. Um, and this means that most of man's life um, is comes under the realm of nature and a small part of it, uh, the area of grace. So Aquinas emphasizes that the first human being has this gift of grace before the fall. After it, he's deprived of it. And so God has structurally divided the human being into a domain of nature and the domain of grace, only the grace bit is lost with the fall, and then it's added again um, with Christ, so that we can reach our highest goal. Mm -hmm. We can, we can, we can reach that uh, idea of a, uh, an eternal destiny. So, grace does not stand opposite or above nature in the Bible, um, as Aquinas would have it, but opposite to God's wrath, and so. Where we can see the fundamental problem here, where things get so misdirected, is that grace now is thought of as a perfection, elevating human nature above its own nature to a supernatural state. Do you see? So it, it's it's not grace isn't that in that sense truly human. It's something other. It's above, and this gets added. It's a kind of you know the the, the Greeks were always talking about their perfections. And so now you've got this perfection that needs to be added to human nature itself. Whereas for the Bible and for the reformers, grace is not the elevation of human nature. It's the restoration and liberation of human nature. So you're not being lifted up through some divine principle to a higher level. You're having your true nature restored. So that is where the fundamental uh, division um, comes in. And that uh, has, has absolutely remained remained with us right so whether it's form with aristotle uh, or grace with aquinas one part of our existence is being elevated over the other and that's of course problematic as you pointed out um yeah so i i, I well my question would be like from that joe what what are and and i might be skipping ahead a bit but what are some of the implications of that uh improper um, analysis of the human condition. Right. Well, um, firstly, uh, and, and one of the very, very problematic implications of this of, of, that I wanted to talk about today is that the, the, the flesh, the material, the non-divine earthly matter of the body 
uh, is conceived as a shell for the noblest part of man, the immortal soul, uh, which we think of as escaping the body or the flesh at death. So one of the most critical problems is that it, it, it led to and it leads to an anthropology which mm. sees human beings as an assemblage, and, and we'll see what the, in a moment what the, some of the cultural practical implications of this are, but um, it, it leads to the human person being conceived of as this uncomfortable assemblage of two parts. The rational soul, the anima rationalis, is regarded as this spiritual complex of functions in which we might think of things like thinking, your reasoning. Uh, that's, the, that's the rational soul, and the body is implicitly or, or explicitly denigrated in terms of the carnal appetites. And so sin's root is started, it, it becomes located in the lower fleshly mm. desires, not in man's reason or in his spirit, as it were, but rather in this material fleshly realm. Um, and so you can immediately see how with the medieval period and, and the rise of scholasticism, um, the aesthetic ideal for the Christian is emphasized that you, you know, you withdraw from life, you withdraw from marriage and sexuality, uh, you withdraw from the general um, uh, practices within cultural life, politics and so on. And you, you, you rise above the fray and you do so by withdrawing into an aesthetic ideal where the body is radically denied. And so you can see immediately that one of the implications is uh, an implicit, if not explicit, denigration of the body. And, and when the human person is divided up like this, as this uncomfortable assemblage um, mm -hmm. of a rational soul, an immortal rational soul, and a material body, which the material, remember, is the principle of imperfection, how creation itself and how culture itself becomes divided up along these lines. And we start to think of Christianity grace as for this upper story of reality, um, but not really for uh, the rest of life. And then disembodiment and, you know, ideas of heaven become emphasized over earth and um, incarnation and resurrection. And so, which we'll, we'll come to shortly, but the... Um, this 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 synthetic idea this this dualism it, it starts to that expresses itself through these polarities of nature and grace uh runs antithetical really to the biblical notion of human beings as a unity hmm. you know paul does talk about an inner man and an outer man but he doesn't talk about an immortal rational soul hmm. and a material body as though these are an uncomfortable assemblage of two uh, easily distinguishable things. And uh, scripture really talks to us in terms of the unity of creation and of human beings and a life comprehending apostasy and fall into sin and an equally life comprehending redemption at the root of our being, which includes, includes the entirety of the human person. And, and that is uh, essentially lost. Uh, we lose sight of that in the Thomistic and the Neo-Thomistic um, paradigm. Uh, this attempt really to localize um, a twofold focus in the life of a human being into two spheres. Nature, that's less good. Mm -hmm. Race, that's really good. Um, puts the religious antithesis that we often speak about and the reformational perspective uh, uh, talks about simply in the, in the wrong place. And um, this is the struggle that always then goes on. And, and, and this is the, the, the polarities that are created where people don't know what to do with culture and they don't know what to do with politics and law and education and everything else. Because mm -hmm. is that really that important? I thought that ours is a supernatural faith. It's about this addition of grace. And up there mm -hmm. is what's really important, not, is what, not what's down here. Mm -hmm. Quit wasting your time mucking it up in the lower story. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. We often, don't we, talk about the, the double-decker bus image mm -hmm. and being up on this upper story of super nature, not mm -hmm. nature, remember? So think in Aristotle's language, nature, super nature. Uh, nature's the lower deck, first floor is 
supernature. That's what's really important. That's where spirituality is. That's where the higher functions of human life are. Um, and that's where the, the really important aspects of our lives are. What's on the lower deck is less important. And um, of course, this carries through to the Reformation itself. Mm -hmm. And Joe, you made the point at the colloquium that the secularist cares very much about what's happening on the lower story. Indeed, because uh, the if we if we continue that image of the of the double decker bus of a of a lower deck and an upper deck, and you put your um, church activities, your your ecclesiastical offices, uh, your preaching of the word, the sacraments, prayer, Bible reading, um, heaven on the upper deck and on the lower deck you've got law politics art business economics um and so forth culture essentially um where's the driver mm -hmm. the driver is always on the lower deck mm -hmm. um and so when christians succumb to this kind of dualism um and I, in, in a few minutes we'll just we'll give some very specific illustrations of this polarity um when we succumb to that we're then shocked as to why the culture is driving a million miles away from us. Um, and we're looking for the reason for radical secularization out there somewhere, when in fact we actually should be looking at ourselves, the church, our view of the gospel, uh, for why things um, have become as, as they have. I mean, Martin Luther in particular, uh, who claimed to be of the school of William of Ockham, continued this uh, separation but it come it becomes even more radical so with with thomas at least there is a genuine attempt to relate the upper story and the lower story there's an attempt to try and hold them together um and the roman church tries to hold nature and grace together uh, by as we've often put it sort of sprinkling the ecclesiastical offices we might say the pixie dust of the church over as many things in nature as possible to try and bring them up um into the higher level to at least uh, to make them a ladder or a gateway to the, the supernatural realm to try and hold together an ecclesiastical culture of Christendom, a unified ecclesiastical culture. Well, this is, of course, what Martin Luther, William of Ockham, uh, based on Ockham's thought, um, uh, breaks away from. And, and in a certain sense, the logic of this dualism is, is pushed to an extreme. And the uh, separation of the natural life from the supernatural Christian life of grace is radically severed. And that, that of course, gives us the idea of secularization, that the, se the separation of reason and revelation. So for, for Thomas, because the fall was essentially a loss of an added gift, man's reason in and of itself was not radically broken or fallen. It wasn't at the root of man's being in the totality of his life. And therefore, man's natural reason was good as far as it went yeah, for politics and thinking through education and law and um, economic life and human society, social life and all these things. Well, human reason was was enough. Um, human reason was the, the anima rationalis. This was the... Um, the, 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 the substantial unity of man, this supernatural part that participated in the divine, that wasn't part of the principle of imperfection. Um, this, of course, was good as, as far as it went. And so uh, when by the time the Reformation comes around, uh, the, 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 a separation, a radical separation of reason and revelation uh, begins to take root. Uh, not in Calvin uh, to the same degree by any stretch, and certainly not in his contemporaries like uh, Busser and others and Verret, but in in Luther himself. And then it gets expressed theologically in things like a radical law gospel um, separation. Mm. And uh, the idea then, if 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 reason, in terms of natural reason, and, and then and natural law are, are good as far as they go. Um, the notion that you inwardly need to reform politics, law, the sciences in a distinctly Christian way. The, the notion that you would bring the word of God, scripture to bear on politics, law, education, the arts, medicine and so on. That would be totally foreign because reason is the realm of nature. Um, that doesn't need supernatural revelation. The, the Because it's nature, grace. Uh, 
that is all um, something which man's uh, natural reasoning is adequate for. Why would you need to mix the two stories? Uh, it's clearly not necessary on this uh, Thomistic Greek view. So the notion that you would need to have a Christian view of politics, a Christian view of law, or a Christian view of education, this would have seemed bizarre and foreign um, because Christianity concerns supernature and the upper story and this special gift of grace to the intellect to bring me and restore me to my right relationship with God. So there was no basis for Luther to begin an inner reformation of thought itself in terms of a Christian route, a biblical route, because he accepts this, this radical separation. And then, of course, this eventually develops into dialectical theology within Protestantism, uh, which completely rejects the religious antithesis and the idea of a Christian politics and Christian culture in toto. Remember, Thomas was at least trying to retain the idea of a Christian culture with a synthesis, but he's opened the door to this radical dualism. Well, as the influence of the church starts to decline in the ecclesiastical culture, which was holding the, the two together and sprinkling the, the pixie dust of grace on everything, as that begins to break and a more radical separation between creation, redemption, reason, revelation is realized, secularization is the result. And then you've got the dialectical theology of Karl Barth within Protestantism, which rejects any point of contact between the Christian faith and the natural life. So any idea of Christian art or Christian political life or scholarship, even social action, is rejected. The word of God is wholly other. It's in this supernatural realm. Even the Bible itself for Barth um, may contain the word of God for the spiritual life of man, but the Bible in toto isn't the word of God. Mm -hmm. um, and so the separation um, is is radical. And of course, this has enormous implications because you start to live one part of your life for God, where his commands seem relevant, this upper story in the church, maybe in the, the family a bit, um, and certainly in your personal spiritual life. But... Um, the commands of God and the word of God for much of the rest of life are essentially irrelevant. Um, so the kind of society that Aquinas was driving at with this synthesis, uh, the kind of, we talked about him wanting a kind of Christian culture. And you might think, well, isn't that what the Ezra Institute's all about? Christian You're culture. Here. <laughs> uh, and uh, are we, are we keen on that? A new Christendom. And isn't that what Aquinas was about? And, and, and so we can say sort of, you know, one cheer for Aquinas uh, <laughs> because he, he was at least thinking in those terms um, in this synthesis. But what he aspired to in the end was at most an ecclesiastical culture of unity uh, that was upholding the authority of the Pope to try and keep uh, Catholic states uh, together and to try and retain um, a unified ecclesiastical culture. It wasn't a radical root and branch reformation of life in terms of biblical faith that would see law, politics, education, these various areas with an inner reformation of their thought in terms of the word of God. Now that could continue on a basically Greek foundation in terms of the Greek idea of reason, the Greek idea of nature, but the church could influence and impact that from above uh, where the organization of human society becomes a kind of portal into that arena of grace and where the church holds things together by imposing to some degree the ecclesiastical offices on everything. So it was a very different idea of Christian culture than the one we talk about and think about where we're talking about the inner reformation of all of life mm -hmm. in terms of um, the grace of God. So to be fair to Aquinas, as we've tried to be and we're trying to be throughout this series, um, I don't think he could see the full implications of what he was doing. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he, he was a brilliant man and he was taken up very much with the task of um, how to resist pa um, pagan philosophy's destruction of the church and, uh, and Islam's uh, challenge to the church and, and reaching the Muslim world. I don't think he could see that his dual philosophy uh, his double normative would eventually lead to an irreligious secularism. And by a double normative, I mean 
Aquinas is now working with two sources of authority, isn't he? The Bible, Christianity, grace, and nature, reason. Suddenly he's got two sources of authority, uh, not one. And how are you going to really bring those together? The short-term solution was, well, nature, reason is good as far as it goes until it, until it conflicts with some dogmatic opinion of the church on church doctrine. And then you must have made some kind of mistake in your reasoning. Uh, so that's how they tried to overcome that idea. And this is why we, in our time, as the door opened up inadvertently by Aquinas to a radical secularism, we shouldn't really be looking for the ultimate cause of secularization out there, but actually in a schizophrenic church. Hmm. Um, uh, and by that, I mean, we're simultaneously living our lives in both a spiritual, in quotes, and a neutral, in quotes, sphere. And that's why uh, we talk, don't we, as a ministry about the myth of neutrality. But this is where the idea of the neutral realm comes from, the neutral realm of reason. It's the lower story of nature. Um, it's untouched by the word of God, the authority of Christ, the lordship of Christ. And so, so many Christians find themselves in this divided um, schizophrenic realm prisoners of the age-old uh, nature-grace dualism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Joe, I want, to, uh, I want to spend much of the rest of our time on some of, these, some of the ways that these distinctions have be, are being played out uh, in our own time. But mm -hmm. before we do that, uh, you've mentioned that uh, the, the biblical distinction is grace and wrath. Uh, but one of the other biblical distinctions uh, that uh, at first blush sounds pretty similar to nature and grace is uh, flesh and spirit. Hmm. Can you maybe comment before we move on, on what, uh, why we have those maybe similar sounding categories, but how the content of them differs from, from the Thomistic nature grace uh, categories? Yeah. That's a good that's a good question, um, because the danger is that uh, the nature grace dualism gets read onto the Bible. Yeah, uh, certainly Thomas was doing uh, was reading on Aristotelian categories and then is reading off nature grace. And uh, that that's the danger when we look at um, the Newer Testament in particular, when you when you hear Paul talking about the works of the flesh yeah. um, and then the work of the spirit. Um, and we start thinking in terms of these two layers uh, as though the problem is some sort of ontological reality of man's existence, that if only he could live in the spiritual realm rather than the fleshly realm, he'd be okay, but he keeps getting pulled back down into the realm of flesh. Mm -hmm. Now, that is emphatically not um, what the Bible teaches. Um, what Scripture teaches is that human beings are a unity created in God's image uh, who are utterly and totally dependent in every aspect of their being upon God. And there is uh, a part of us that you can see. We sometimes call it our flesh. You know, we're flesh and blood. We talk about being flesh and blood. There's a part of us that you can see. We might call that the outer man, as Paul does. And there's a part to, there's an aspect to being human uh, of which we cannot see. You cannot see the heart of a person. Of course, you can cut open somebody's chest and look at the organ that we call the heart, but the root, the ego, the eye, you know, you, you cut somebody's head open, uh, you might, you will see, hopefully, the organ of their brain. But you, you don't see their mind. You don't see their heart. And uh, so the what the Bible has in mind is not a, an, an ontological division of the human person when it speaks about flesh and spirit. There is a, when the Bible talks about the spirit or the soul, it's not talking about an, an immortal rational substance uh, that's dis radically distinct from a material creation. It's looking at the, um, uh, in fact, when we talk about souls, even in, in popular language, we're talking about people. It's a, it's another, it's, it's a, from multiple perspectives, like looking at, um, a finely cut stone, we can turn that stone 
and we can describe the same stone in different ways. So we can talk about if, if a ship goes down at sea, for example, and 500 people are killed, we can talk, we talk about 500 souls being lost, mm-hmm. people. Um, when David is talking about his relationship to God, King David, he talks about um, his bowels. Uh, he talks about his flesh hungering and thirsting for the living God. So there, the scripture looks at the human person as a unity, but often from different angles. And so uh, we talk about the bowels of mercy, the very fact that the Bible uses the language of the heart uh, is taking it, just is using the, the, the metaphor of the physical heart to talk about something that's inward. And so when the Bible talks about the spirit, it's the, the, spiritual, the spiritual man, it's talking about the whole person under the influence of the Holy Spirit, transformed by the, 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 the life and reality of the gospel of, of Christ. So the, the work of the flesh is not the work of a lower material realm. When, it's, when the Bible talks about the work of the flesh or the carnal appetite, it's talking about the order of sin. So but there are two orders within creation. There's the order of sin and rebellion, of disobedience, of apostasy, and then there's the order of, of, of obedience and to be uh, um, the, the order of the redeemed who are under the influence and the transforming and renewing power at the root of our being of the Holy Spirit. So the Bible doesn't talk about our nature being elevated, uh, but being renewed and restored so that we're actually born again. That's the language of the Bible, that the, the change that's needed in us is so radical it's not just a change of intellectual posture. It's not just some additional added thing that we did just added on to our reasoning. Um, it is a new birth by which the Holy Spirit at the root of our being, in our heart, our spirit, our soul, these are interchangeable terms in the Bible to describe the same thing, the roots of the human person, um, needs to be renewed and reborn and made alive to God. Because the Bible doesn't talk about us being wounded. It talks about us being dead. Mm-hmm. And outside of Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins. So the way of the flesh and the carnal appetite is not, oh, that's things like um, food and uh, sexuality and enjoying God's creation um, and those sorts of things that those are all the fleshly things and we need to get our minds off those things and onto some sort of higher supernatural spiritual reality up there that's intangible and non-physical. That is not what the Bible is talking about. This, the spiritual life, true spirituality, Paul describes it actually in Romans 12, doesn't he, when he says, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to discern, discern the will of God, he says, Um, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Mm -hmm. So there in Romans 12, Paul destroys completely the idea of a duality between body and spirituality. The spiritual life, the truly spiritual life is one where from the root of our being in every aspect of our life, we are directed towards Christ under the influence of the Holy Spirit we're oriented towards obedience, faith in our leisure, in our play, in our um, prayers, in our um, vocations, in our marriages, in, a, in your sex life, in every single aspect of your life. You are spiritual because you're oriented towards Christ mm-hmm. and, you're un- and you're, you're, you've been conformed to the image of his son and the Holy Spirit is at work in you so that we willing to do of his good pleasure in the entirety and with the totality of our being. And this is, of course, why the incarnation of Jesus Christ is so important in the, in the flesh as a full human being and his resurrection as a complete full human being embodied. I actually don't even like the, the description of human beings as embodied souls. Um, I think that's still Greek. Mm. Um, the, the human person, as I look at um, uh, uh, Nathan or I look at you, Ryan, I'm not looking at an outer shell. I'm not simply looking at um, some in principle of imperfection manifested in a changing and decaying um, material principle. And the real you is 
um, some invisible, substantial, uh, immortal substance called a soul. No, when I look at you, I'm looking at you. Um, and you're a unity. And the, there, is a, there is a mystery, an indivisible mystery of what it means to be human that we see in the incarnation and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ did not come out of the grave as a disembodied spirit of a higher form without a prince, you know, missing his principle of imperfection mm. of a lower material body. And I think that's a, it's a really critical issue, Ryan, that you've touched on because we so often read this false duality into the Bible when mm. it's not there. Spirit, right. soul, um, body, personhood, heart. These are all ways of describing the unity that is the human person. But we can look at the human person from different angles. But what we're describing always fundamentally is a unity. So the truly spiritual life is not a life that denies the body and creation. The spiritual life in the Bible is a life of obedience and faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in every area of life. And the carnal life, the fleshly life, is one of sin and rebellion. Mm. So it's an issue of direction. Let's come back to that principle, not structure. Mm. There's not two structures, one of which is higher, the other which is lower. And if we just make sure we stay in the upper structure, we're going to be okay. No, my mind, my... Uh, inner person the heart of man the scripture says the heart is deceit deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it and that out of the heart come jesus says every kind of evil murders adulteries slanders they all come out of the inner man the 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 invisible part of us aspect of our being so the notion that if you just focus on the spiritual that you're going to be safe no this is this is not a scriptural idea Great. Well, and as um, as Ryan mentioned, I think a great way to wrap up this uh, this episode would be, uh, Joe, if you could perhaps share some examples of how this dualistic line of thinking has had a negative impact on the life of the church. And I, I would just circle back. You mentioned it a few times, but um, how the church uh, will often sprinkle Christian pixie dust on nature and think that's sufficient. But one of the things that immediately comes to my mind is the Christian school that teaches all of its subjects without a distinct Christian worldview, but then we'll have a Bible class on Thursday morning and think that that checks all the boxes. We're a Christian school. So maybe you can comment on that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a very good illustration of the, the inadvertent, the indirect and, and us remaining kind of prisoners of this artificial duality because, mm. because, and the reason it kind of, falls out that way, Nathan, as you've described it so well, is that education is in the lower deck. Education is something that can happen in terms of the principle that everybody can agree on. Yeah, that especially is, math, right? Especially the math, yeah. right? So that's not... Yeah. Any child can teach your kid to do math. Mm -hmm. Right. Why do you need a Christian the, to do that? The notion that you would need an inner reformation of the curriculum of history, philosophy, you know, math, English, etc., doesn't occur. That's all neutral principles. So to have a Christian school, you must have a chapel service, mm -hmm. maybe have prayers every day and have a devotion every day. Mm -hmm. And then that's a Christian school because you're sprinkling the pixie dust of Christianity on top of a neutral secular curriculum. And that makes it Christian rather than realizing, no, uh, at the root of all teaching is a fundamental religious framework, a faith foundation that actually guides and steers and directs our reasoning, our thinking in all of those areas. And so we need an inner reformation of education, an inner reformation of the curriculum, not just uh, prayer and Bible reading added to a neutral, inadverted common mm -hmm. secular education. Mm -hmm. Some of the dichotomies you talk about, you know, I can just name a few of them. I think Ryan will direct us to an article where people can spend more time thinking about this. Um, but the, I've just talked actually um, just now, in, as, as we as we talked about the idea of the spirit, the spiritual and the fleshly, this 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 body soul radical distinction where people speak as though we are a soul, but we have a body. And uh, I've, I've worked in the past with leading Christian apologists who I heard open a lecture like that once. You know, you you are a soul. You have a body. That's not biblical. That isn't true. Human beings are um a unity, they're not made up of two separate substances, one higher, one lower. That's related to the, another familiar division, the material spiritual. 
So we think of the Christian life as consisting of spiritual disciplines in an upper story, and that's an inner battle against um, the lower part of us, lower desires that we think of as stemming from the body, um, which a body which we think we're going to escape into heaven. And we often say, don't we, that, that the Bible doesn't teach the escape of the human person from creation into heaven, of some disembodied substance into heaven. It teaches that the kingdom of heaven, the new Jerusalem, comes out of heaven into the earth. Uh, and the Bible teaches the resurrection of the body as our inheritance, that that's the full meaning of restoration. And then you've got the natural supernatural, which is right out of, uh, of Thomism. Most activities are natural. They're about this world. Christianity is about a supernatural world beyond this one. And so what's really important is the supernatural stuff, not the natural stuff. So, you know, the earth's going to hell in a handbasket, don't polish brass on a sinking ship, that kind of a mentality. That leads us to the public-private uh, division, where we think our spiritual life of faith is an essentially private matter. It's about personal convictions. And of course, you don't impose those personal convictions on anybody else because it's a private matter. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and the public space of law, politics, education, culture, that's all that neutral sphere again. And so we have another familiar division, the sacred, a secular sacred. Most things can function well on in terms of neutral, secular principles and concepts. Man's common natural reason is sufficient to govern our lives. But of course, we need the sacred. We need the word of God in the life of the church, the upper story of the sacred. But don't dare Christianize culture and mix the upper story and the lower story. That's that's uh, that's a terrible sin. Um, and of course, that's related to the law gospel duality, which you mentioned that we see, especially in Luther, because the law is concerned with earth and with the material world and sinful desires. The gospel concerns freedom and the church institution of grace. And then we think even in terms of revelation now along these artificial lines. So we speak of a common uh, revelation and a special revelation, a realm of common grace and common principles and natural law. And then Christ being the source of special grace and special revelation, rather than seeing Christ at the root of all knowledge and of all grace as the creator and the redeemer. So, Joe, would you say special revelation? Is that a misnomer? Yes. Hmm. Yeah, because I I think it is. I think it's it's an unhelpful um, referent back to a dualistic worldview Hmm. that wants to see uh, a lower story of revelation nature uh, seen on in largely these neutral terms uh, that's accessible to everybody and everybody can get get to certain truths through natural revelation. And then there's this special revelation, though, that's the Bible, that's not publicly accessible knowledge. And so special revelation couldn't possibly be used to guide culture because not everybody accepts that, whereas everybody can accept revelation in nature. Um, whereas the, where a scripture would teach... No such thing. It would say that um, what we know through creation, the normative structure of creation serves only to condemn us and that man twists and distorts everything that God has revealed about himself, whether it's in what God has revealed about himself in creation or whether it's what he's revealed about himself in scripture. So um, and, and of course, the revelation of creation in Christ, the revelation of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the inscripturated revelation in the Bible are a unity. And so this common special uh, division is an artificial and unhelpful division, as though man is ready to accept what is revealed about him and about God in creation, but he's not ready to hear about what it's in, what, uh, hear about those things as they come to us in Christ or other things as they come to us in Christ and um in, in, in the inscripturated word of God, which are totally involved in each other because you couldn't possibly mm-hmm. understand the word of scripture without the recognition of the revelation of, of creation and redemption in scripture without recognizing what God is saying in creation itself. So when man rejects revelation, he's rejecting it everywhere, right? He's, he's or at least he's, he's hearing, uh, he's, he, as a responding being, he's not responding in faith and obedience, he's rebelling in apostasy. So the supernatural revelation tends to be seen as for the soul 
Um, that's necessary for eternal salvation, but natural so-called revelation is good enough for everywhere else, and we can all agree on that and all accept that. Well, that may have sounded good in a Christian culture, but now that we can't agree with our neighbor that there's two sexes, hmm. that there's male and female, hmm. um, where do we go with natural revelation then? Uh, the notion that a neutral reason will reach the same conclusions in the realm of some common revelation. And, and of course, that relates to the, the, the false science and faith dichotomy. So science operates in terms of objective natural reason and is a sort of religiously neutral knowledge about the natural world, whereas faith is unrelated to all of that. Faith doesn't ask questions about uh, what happens, but only why sort of higher value judgments. So you get that false notion that um, when the scientist is pursuing his sciences, that he's somehow just operating on a neutral basis. No, he's operating out of a world and life view uh, that has foundational religious commitments, which are going to determine his conclusions, how he understands what he's doing. Um, and he's making value judgments all the time. Um, so this is an artificial separation of two domains. Um, that says, well, we don't need to really interact with things like evolution, for example, um, because our faith is about why things happen. It's asking higher purpose questions about meaning, not about the the what's and the how's of creation itself. And that leads to the final false distinction of, of culture and kingdom, where the kingdom of God is purely a spiritual, invisible reality that doesn't really manifest itself outside of the human heart and church ecclesiastical culture. The kingdom of God is that realm of grace. Um, the present earth and human culture is something else. Uh, and so the kingdom of God is about getting souls into heaven. The kingdom of God is not about transforming, seeing the lordship of Christ and his transforming word brought to bear on the family, law, politics, education, the arts, seeing the reconciliation of all things to God. No, the kingdom is shunted off into another time, another realm, another area, another period. However you do it, and different people do it in different ways, but the, the, the result is always the same. God, Christ's redemptive life is separated from our real life in the created world in some way or another. And so this, this is the heart of what Thomism, Thomism really unleashed on the world in the attempt to synthesize Christianity with Aristotle. Um, it's been an uncom uncomfortable assemblage. It's a, it's a, it produces a radical duality and it can't be overcome while we're still suckling on the, the, the uh, Romanist and matriarchal teeth, as it were, um, of, uh, of, a, of, the, of the Greeks uh, as, it has, as they come to us through, through Thomas Aquinas. We need to break with that dualism if we're going to address the problems of our, of our culture. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it just occurs to me as you're you're describing uh, some of these distinctions that this is it's really a a theory or a, a mindset or a, a worldview that only works in theory. You know, as soon as you smash up against the the real hard stuff of life, any kind of meaningful decision to be made, you're you're bringing value judgments into like real life situations and. We are like on what other basis would we do we have you know even something like a do we prefer certain foods over others or do we prefer to live in North America rather than North Korea? Yeah, yes, it's uh, as as soon as uh, I, I, that that's a helpful point, and of course that ties in very well with the intellectualism of the Greeks um, that uh, they were good at writing their theoretical utopias. They didn't really want to deal with the world as it was. And I think it's a sad fact that so many Christians today don't really want to deal with the world as it is today. Mm. We'd rather develop eschatologies of retreat and defeat and escape um, and theologies of retreat and abandonment of culture rather than actually facing it and applying it. Because I gave, I just in passing that illustration that is so profound now and so um, disturbing in our culture when it comes to human identity and sexuality is that if there is no normative structure for creation, um, and you know we think about that normative structure of family, of father, um, of children, mother and father, children, male, female, the most basic distinction found in creation at the beginning of creation, 
and and the way in which that's picked up in terms of God's revelation of himself as father, uh, as bound in marriage to his people Israel, as the betrothed, as his church being betrothed to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the marriage supper of the lamb at the end of history, um, which, you know, bookends, paradise lost, paradise regained, marriage at the beginning, marriage at the end, uh, as a key to the very meaning of the universe. Um, the, the, the destruction, the attempted destruction of male and female and of marriage and of human identity in our culture um, forms the basis of, of course, shattering what we might call the, you know, the, what Nathan was talking about earlier, the, the idea of a special revelation, of a separated mm. special revelation. How could you possibly understand the special revelation of the New Testament about the church and about the, the meaning of redemption when you no longer can agree with somebody in the real world that there's male and female fathers and mothers mm-hmm. when god covenantally reveals himself as father what does that mean to somebody who grows up in a culture where there are no fathers there are only parent one parent two gender is fluid and there is no male and female uh, in canada you can have parent three and parent four as well indeed legally in 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 ontario uh, parents can um, people can have a contract to 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 parent a child who they're completely biologically unrelated to. So that idea of a scram total scrambling of, of parenthood, um, and this is where all of these dualistic frameworks, uh, you know, that we haven't talked yet about the two kingdoms um, mm. picking up of this nature grace dualism works fine uh, theoretically in a christianized culture where your neighbors do agree with you that there's two sexes male and female um as de-christianization re-paganization happens uh the 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 reality of um of god's self-revelation um uh, where human beings are his image bearers don't forget that's why we want to destroy marriage and we want to destroy male and female as we want to destroy god himself we want to be rid we can't strike out directly at god so in order to strike at God, we strike at his image bearer and try and destroy the image. And so uh, because that's a reminder of God, male and female is a reminder of God. Marriage is a reminder of God mm-hmm. uh, and of who he is. So I think that's a really important point to end on, which is these th- things may sound um, good um, theoretically, theoretical syntheses, but when the real world uh, when when they encounter the real world, just as when the ecclesiastical culture of Christendom and, and the Thomistic synthesis hit the real world and the and, and the Renaissance, uh, that unified ecclesiastical culture was shattered. So today, um, the attempt to to remain in that duality and jettison God's word and Christ's lordship, or at least shunt it off into another realm and to another world and to another age. Um, uh, is bringing about the decay and collapse both of uh, the society and and the church, because um, uh, well the the ideas the academic and intellectual ideas of theoretical um, theologians and professors and so forth uh, wrongly dividing scripture has real world consequences and and I think that's one of the most important things to note here is how this really does break down when you try and divide up man in this way and human life in this way. It really does break down and there's no hiding in the ecclesiastical upper story away from this. Eventually that, that ecclesiastical upper story is brought down. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, once the lower story is completely taken over, you know, somebody starts coming up the stairs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the reality of what we're seeing now. You know, you in Canada, you cannot by law uh, counsel or teach your children, um, you can't take your child to your pastor, say, or or a, or a Christian counselor, say that my child is struggling with, or actually not just a child, you can't even take your adult consenting friend That's to right. a Christian pastor um, or a Christian counselor to say, can you spend time with t- teaching and counseling and praying with my friend or my child struggling with same-sex desire or struggling with um, uh, their identity? That's now a criminal act. So the lower story will then, if it's given up and handed over to anti-Christianity, it will come up the stairs and it will start taking over the upper story. 
And so that's what's happening now. The Christian family or the Christian church is being forbidden by law to do those things in Canada. Mm -hmm. Well, and perhaps it's because this dualism may for some work theoretically, but certainly not practically. That could be why Thomistic thought is held with such high regard amongst academics. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> and I think it gives us, it, it gives people an out, doesn't it? Because mm -hmm. it theoretically sounds good and it allows you not to have to directly engage and invoke the Lordship of Christ and authority of his word that's in all right. these areas of culture that have been radically mm -hmm. secularized, which when we step into them, we feel incredibly uncomfortable mm -hmm. and, and we feel ostracized and marginalized and even persecuted as soon as we seek to bring that revelation of Christ and his lordship as creator and redeemer to bear. Mm -hmm. We don't want that. We don't want that struggle. We don't want that battle. So retreat into the theoretical realm um, where you feel safe. And that, that I think is the big temptation in our time. Great. Thanks a lot, Joe. With that, uh, with that parting note, uh, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up this episode. I'm looking forward to, continuing on in this series. I hope that uh, that all of our listeners have been enjoying it. And Joe, you mentioned earlier uh, the uh, the recent article that you published on scholasticism. Uh, that is in the summer 22 edition of Jubilee. And you can get that at the Ezra Press website. That's just ezrapress.com. You can read that article. You can read previous issues of Jubilee. And you can uh, subscribe uh, to receive future hard copy uh, editions of Jubilee as well. So I'll, I'll put a link to that in the, uh, the description. And on that note, Ryan, uh, is it worth you mentioning that, um, very soon for people to watch this space for the launch of our, of our learning portal? Better say something about that too. Yes. Yeah. So, and, uh, again, you continue to watch this space. We've been talking about the learning portal. We've been developing, fine tuning, uh, polishing that up. And we anticipate the launch of that uh, on uh, November 1st. So about a month's time, five weeks' time from now, uh, that that portal will be available. It's a... It's Do you mean online... December 1st? I'm sorry? Do you mean December 1st? Yes. What did I say? I think you said November. Oh, lies. December. <laughs> December 1st. Uh, we uh, will have that online. And... You'll be able to uh, take systematic courses in Christian philosophy, theology, uh, science, family and, uh, and marriage, and many more things. Uh, it's, we're really just trying, trying to find ways to maximize the way that we are, we are working to, to advance uh, an understanding of the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every sphere of life, in every aspect of culture. And we know that uh, not everyone's able to get to a program. Not everyone's able to uh, you know, to join us and dedicate a week or two weeks of it out, of their, out of their life to, uh, to be with us in person. And we're, we're doing our best to give you that experience uh, remotely. So that's, uh, that's the Ezra Learning Portal. December 1st, that'll be live. We'll, we'll have more updates uh, closer to the time. Yep, thanks for that reminder, Joe. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next week. Wait, oh, I forgot to say the thing. Uh, <laughs> all right from all of us here at the ezra institute we remind you that from him and through him and to him are all things may god alone be glorified and we'll see you next week